why am I drawn to Web3? One of these is like, all this stuff is brand new, right? This is a totally unexplored like design surface, right? It's like 2005 and people are figuring out what REST APIs are and user-generated content are for the very first time. So we'll figure out a bunch of things, but even DAOs, for example, last year and a half, we learned so much about governance and, you know, we learned tons more about token design, but I think the possibilities are just like, it, it, it blows your mind. What's up, dude? What's going on? I like your outfit tonight. Thank you. Uh, I like the buttoned up all the way, buttoned down. I think it's like a it's a sharp look. The stock market is is tanking right now, so I've taken a second job as a busboy. Um, that's that's kind of where I'm at. Can we talk about the market extra for a second? I'm I'm not I'm I'm zero percent market analyst, um, but I do find it funny. I tweeted and then aborted a tweet today because um, I didn't want to offend people. Like for the last 10 years, everyone has been tweeting out like Warren Buffett quotes about, you know, that quote, um, be uh, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. Uh, you know, like everyone tweets that out. It's like this common wisdom that everyone throws out. And, um, you know, then when everyone actually is fearful, everyone just panics and you start getting texts from all your friends being like the world's ending, you know, like Nikita and all these other people in our group chats sending us texts telling us the world is ending. Yeah, I mean, you and I are on the same page with this. Like, we're just kind of like every week buying a little bit, just, you know, trying to keep it calm, looking for good businesses to buy and invest in. Today's episode is brought to you by Marketer Hire. With Marketer Hire, you can get expert marketers on demand. It's easy and fast. What's Marketer Hire? Simply put, Marketer Hire is a marketplace for marketing talent. They built a network of expert marketing professionals pre-vetted by top marketers from well-known and high-growth brands. And then they use their proprietary marketer match technology to match clients with the best marketer for every single project. And they match them fast, typically within 48 hours or less. There's zero risk. You don't sign or pay anything unless you choose to work with someone. Many of my startups in the portfolio are using Marketer Hire and absolutely love it. If you're a growing business, you will too. Check them out today at marketerhire.com. Again, that's marketerhire.com. And tell them Sahil sent you. I mean, I when I look at the market right now, so first off, I buy the S&P 500 every single Monday. Like without fit, I just, I always do that. That's just like my dollar cost average. And that will always be like my biggest position long-term. Um, but I, I mean, when I look at the market today and I see some of the things that I'm like personally um, excited about the trends around, I think it's hard. Like I'm just pulling random stuff up. Like look at um, random, like random growth trends that are in the market that you know are going to be around and be big for the long term. And they're down like 40% off their highs or 50% off their highs. It's just hard to imagine if your time horizon's long enough that it's not a good time to buy these like tech forward names and it's not financial advice but like when i look at it that's why i've like personally on all of these massive collapses i'm just like go buy a little bit of basically everything in my portfolio yeah i mean same here not financial advice but i was just uh, just looking at uh robin hood so robin hood uh just announced a few minutes ago that they're laying off nine percent of their workforce um, and the reason why is because of they're like we have duplicate functions, 
um, which is obviously terrible that people are losing their jobs um, and the stock is down. Um, at the same time, uh, I look at it and I'm like, okay, the market cap for the business is $8.6 billion. They've got like almost $6 billion of cash on hand. So the enterprise value is like two, you know, $3 billion, something like that. And it's Robinhood. They've got like 20 million plus customers. Um, you know, you got to think that that's a decent bet. Yeah. I, and again, like I know nothing about the fundamentals of these, but I, I don't actually buy single name stocks. You know this, like I only own one single name stock. It hasn't gone so hot since I did it because the only one that I bought, it was like right into the peak of, of the NASDAQ. But I don't really buy single name stocks. So I'm just like, some of these industries are just going to be massive and continue to exist if we're going to have a future as a society like semiconductors down SMH, which is like the name that I'm in there, is literally down from like 300 plus to like 220 or something, 230. Like that is a massive drop. Um, and yeah, like, is it going to get impacted by all this stuff? Probably. But the reality is like semiconductors have to exist and continue to develop for us to have a technology driven future. Uh, do you know Raul Paul, um, yeah. the Real Vision guy? Um, he sent me his latest piece. Um, he calls it the exponential age. Um, you know, his whole like thesis for the future here. And um, he basically is like tracking this basket of what he calls the kind of exponential age stocks and looking at where they are relative to their trends li trend lines and whether they're buys. And for the first time this week, he started saying um, on the drop that he was going to start legging into this stuff because they're so far down off of their trend lines that, you know, as these become a bigger and bigger part of our technology future, uh, they're going to be like life-changing returns on the, um, you know, on the upside coming back from this. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, there's tons of macro involved, obviously, like the Fed continuing to tighten and raise interest rates is a huge driver of the markets. I personally think that if we see, my gut tells me that we're going to see like a pretty bad Q2 um, from an economy standpoint. Like I wouldn't be shocked if we actually saw negative growth and people panic. I think the Fed will just like reverse course very quickly because they've shown an unwillingness to allow pain. Um, and I think if they do that, growth stocks will rip like we've never seen them rip in history. Uh, and anyone that was actually, you know, kind of had the guts to be buying, I think will be rewarded for those guts. But Again, not financial advice and uh, time horizons matter. If you're planning to retire and you need this cash soon for some purchase or something, completely different story than you and I sitting here just basically like, you know, I feel like it's toy money because um, I don't need it for a long time. Switching gears from public markets to private markets. I don't know if you saw, you mentioned Nikita, but he tweeted uh, the other day, if the startup you're working for is valued at more than $100 million, and the exercise window on your options is 90 days. You should pencil in that your equity will be worth nothing at this point. Um, and I'd love you to just to explain that for folks. Uh, what is he saying? And then how do you think that these, you know, big drawdowns of 50, 60, 70% on public markets are going to affect, you know, yeah. seed, series A, series B, series C startups? Yeah, I mean, I think broadly what he's getting at is the idea that, um, you know, equity to, to employees was issued at, you know, sort of the most recent valuation of the company. And in an environment like this, if you were joining like a series C or series B startup that had raised at a big price and your equity was being issued at that price, um, 
you're underwater you know on a true mark to market basis private markets do not have a mark to market function in the way that public markets do i can go check the coinbase stock every single day and know that the value of my equity is lower but in a private market if my company just raised at a billion dollar valuation and i got equity granted at that valuation now a few months later the market has clearly adjusted that billion dollars which was based off of a lot of public comps in the market is worth it could be worth 40 50% less just off of like pure public comps because of how much some of the public names have dropped from a multiple standpoint and so what i think nikito is getting at is just this idea that like oh my god a lot of startup equity in these uh, employees that have that equity are wildly underwater and there is like a massive return in the market um, that needs to be achieved prior to those people having any value in that equity. Um, and it's a challenge. I mean, we saw Instacart, I think, I think it was Instacart a few weeks ago, like repriced their, uh, repriced their, um, internal valuation for this exact reason. So I think you're going to see, um, more and more startups having to think, um, really deliberately about doing this, like Instacart, I just pulled this up. March 25th, Instacart basically um, cut its own valuation to $24 billion, which was a markdown of almost 40% off of where the last funding round had been done by Fidelity, D1, Sequoia, and Andreessen. So the, all those guys invested um, you know, at like uh, yeah, $39 billion in um, March of 2021. And a year later... Um, you know, the company was actually marking it down from 39 billion to 24 billion for the purposes of making sure that employees, you know, had real value in the equity that they were, um, that they were granting. Because, you know, it goes without saying, if, if the whole market knows that you're worth less than 39, and you're trying to incentivize employees by saying, hey, I'm going to give you a grant at, based on the 39 billion valuation. If I'm looking at it, I'm saying like, well, that's worth half what, you know, that's worth half what you're telling me it's worth, basically. Um, so it's an interesting dynamic. I do think you're going to see more companies having to reprice and, uh, and think about employee incentives in a more comprehensive way. Yeah. And I, you know, you say it goes without saying, but I actually think we, we should talk about this stuff. Cause I think there's like, you'd be shocked how many employees like just don't know the fundamentals of all this stuff. Um, well, there's a business idea there, by the way, like yeah. the, the lack of education and transparency, around how options work, um, how exercise periods work, um, you know, the tax side of it, managing liquidity, managing your tax implications, all of that stuff is crazy. And that goes for like public companies, it goes for private companies, all of it. I mean, my sister-in-law works um, at Twilio and, you know, has had equity over a long period of time. And it did extraordinarily well over the, you know, period in 2020, it rose to $400 a share. Now it's all the way down to 120. And she was having to pay taxes on things from, you know, gains that she had had. And it's just like this massive headache of things that candidly, very few people that are joining a tech company really want to or would have learned about that stuff, right? And so I think there's a business somewhere in there of like, it's probably a B2B to C sale. Like you go plug in some sort of software or something easy. Um, that's an education and kind of management tool for employees. Um, plug it in with the companies. Um, Carta has tried to do it, but their platform sucks, man. When you go look at it and try to like manage your options on there, it's really not intuitive and non-educational to me. So either they should acquire someone and adapt it. They should improve it or someone can come in and disrupt this market and provide something better. 
Yeah, I like it. I think there's there's definitely like a need for that. Just like people who understand tech, like who understand like, hey, like your CEO might say this company's worth thirty nine billion, but it's really worth twenty four billion. So um, I definitely think uh, there's a business there. Um, I want to pull up um, a text message that I got right before this call um, from a founder I invested in. Um, cause I think if he's texting me this, a lot of people are probably thinking about this and it's related to our conversation. So mm-hmm. he said, do you really, do you think that the fundraising environment is changing or is it just a lot of unwarranted fear? Um, and then I said, what stage are you talking about? And he writes, I guess any stage, seeds or series A. And then he links to me a tweet by, uh, Harry Stebbings. Yeah. Um, I saw that tweet. Founders, you need to hear the truth. The funding market has changed. That raise you wanted, you aren't going to get you are raising too much with too little. You will go out, burn lots of discussions, raising too much, then come back with smaller requests. Don't do this. Um, so That's he wanted a my... plus fud from Harry, man. <laughs> yeah. So he and then he writes LOL after that. Yeah. Um, and he first sees... off, I think VCs are a little self-serving when they tweet stuff like that. And I will tell Harry this. Harry's a friend. Um, it, you know, like, look, I personally. If you're a Series B, Series C, you know, and later startup, has the funding market changed? Yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, you know, like I had, I told you about this. I just had a conversation with um, uh, one of the heads at one of the big crossover funds, and he was telling me like what we're looking at now because we invest in both private and public is we're basically those late stage private companies. We have a direct comparison point now to look at a public company that has the same growth profile, is of bigger scale. And that is liquid. And so he's like, with what those have traded down to, why would I invest in a private late stage software company that is illiquid uh, when I could get the same growth and fundamentals in a liquid name in the public markets at a better price? He's like, it makes no sense. And so what he's seeing is he thinks there's going to be like kind of a rush out of that late stage growth market. So companies that went and raised big rounds in 2021 don't really maybe have to worry about it because they've got runway and hopefully they're being prudent from a cash standpoint. But if you were planning to raise a big, you know, Series C this year at a big price, it's really, really hard. Um, you're just not going to find a lot of capacity in that market. On the earlier side of the market, I'm curious what you're seeing, Greg. I haven't seen a massive change in like seed and maybe like the high, the high price Series A's probably aren't going to happen quite as crazy as they were, which is probably a good thing, candidly. Um, but the like pre-seed seed market, I don't, it's just so long-term and it's, you know, 10 plus year horizons that I, I don't see a massive change in the valuations. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Pre-seed seed, you know, mostly business as usual. Um, you're backing great teams basically. So, um, I still, I still think great teams and great products are going to be competitive, but yeah, agreed. And the later stage, um, I think there'll be some correction. Um, I just, what I don't love about that tweet, um, Harry Stebbings tweet is I think a lot of his following are founders who are, you know, seed series a, or even pre-seed. And I want to encourage people to, to go, you know, to go and build and, and don't be afraid. Like a big part of raising money, like I've raised money a few times, like is the confidence. And so if you're listening to this, like just because you're seeing some tweets, um, that like prices are going down or it's gonna be harder to raise, like, you know, keep your head, keep your head up high. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and look, like, 
builders build. Yeah. Um, you know, f- fundraising is fundraising, but if you're building something valuable and you're building real value, um, there's going to be a market for it. And totally. there's so much capital that has been raised by all of these venture funds. It has to go to work somewhere. Um, and the truth so, is, I don't know. The truth is, like, if you're going to see a tweet, a FUD tweet, and it's going to stop you from raising money, like, are you really an entrepreneur, right? <laughs> yeah, like, totally. that's, like, that's... Plus, who cares? Like, yeah. if it's at... If you raise your Series A at a, you know, 100 million versus 150 a few months ago, yeah, there's more dilution. But if your goal is to build a $10 billion business, um, yeah, you're going to own less, you know, percentage points. Is it slightly worse off? You're still going to be rich. Like, <laughs> if you go build the big thing, you're still going to be rich. It's okay. Uh, so I don't know, man. I, I, um, I just think it's like separate the signal from the noise a bit here. Uh, I know we've got Sriram in the uh, waiting room. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and bring him in. Thank you so much for having me on. You know, the cliche saying of a long-time listener, first-time caller. I just love what you folks do. I watched all of it. I watched, you know, the one with Alexis. And such a, you know, I would say, okay, I'm going to say a bunch of good things and then, like, one really bad, bad thing, okay? The bunch of good things is, you know, love the vibe of the show and, you know, love, like, the couch and the, the comfort and the conversation. It's all great. I just feel like, you know, you know, I was watching Alexis, uh, the one day had Alexis, um, which is a great episode. Alexis is amazing, talking about minimal, uh, minimal viable community. And in the middle, Alexis just kind of calls off camera and someone just brings in, I think, some vodka or tequila or something. And I just want to say, first of all, all I have is like kind of Coke Zero over here. So I feel like I'm not getting the full-blown guest experience. They're like, well, Alexis is like, you know, the big shot. Like, let's get him, you know, let, let's get him like the full-blown team. And like, oh, see, so yeah, yeah, let's kind of get him on like a, you know, uh, like a shitty, you know, uh, internet connection, and let's kind of get this one out. So yeah, I feel like I'm kind of like, uh, uh, like prove you folks wrong here. So I, okay, first off, very fair criticism. I blame, um, I blame COVID. I guess I blame Omicron because the last ones we were able to do in person were like Art Basel week in Miami, and since then we've been doing these on a remote, uh, you know, on a remote setting on on Zoom or on River. Side, uh, which is one of the Lexus's portfolio companies. I think they just raised their Series B. So uh, we've been doing them remote, although super excited post my baby and once my like paternity leave is done to be able to come back and do the, the couch vibe. And we will have you back on and we will have someone walk into the shoot and give you a tequila. I think that was Bobak, by the way, Greg, uh, that, that, did, that did that. Uh, I will hold you. By the way, I just want to say also congratulations in advance. You know, I was sort of expecting, you know, well, it might still happen any moment. You might just kind of disappear and it's going to be me and Greg. I hope uh, not. I hope yeah. not. But um, I will take you up on some uh, father advice at some point soon. So and anyway, man, th- thank you so much for joining. Um, we have been really excited to have you on. And so the feeling is is really mutual and a bunch that we want to want to chat about with you. So I personally would suggest we just dive right into it. Um, the the first thing that I want to talk about before we get into the obvious around Elon Musk and all of this Twitter stuff, um, the first thing I want to get into is um, this uh, Aku world, the Akutars uh, hack or or exploit or um, uh, thing that happened. Greg, did you see this? I did. So I can give everyone, anyone that hasn't seen this, I can give a, a quick primer on. So Aku world, A-K-U world, um, the website is aku.world i believe um it's created by this guy micah johnson who incidentally is like a friend of mine and um someone who 
uh, I think extremely highly of. He's from the baseball world, actually, which is where I know him from. He played baseball at Indiana, ended up going and playing professional baseball, um, and since has become an artist. And he's this incredible artist. Um, and basically, in the early days of the NFT uh, rise, he created this project called Aku World. And it was all based around this pretty amazing story of his nephew, who uh, is an African-American kid, who basically told someone that he wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, and was told that black kids couldn't be astronauts. Uh, and so uh, Micah created this whole art and world and project around um, around that idea. Basically, uh, it's a young boy with an astronaut's helmet on is kind of the basis of this whole world. And it's it's really incredible art, incredible thing. They've had a ton of success with the early drops. But the latest is um, sort of an unfortunate thing that's happened um, in their most recent drop, which was a error in the code um, around the smart contract that was exploited and caused about $33 million to be locked forever uh, in the smart contract. And so I'm curious, like you guys are my web three guys. I'm curious. Um, I'm curious uh, what you guys think of this situation in general, how we can prevent things like this from happening and, um, you know, and, and how we can sort of, um, come back from stuff like this. Uh, good question. Okay. I, I probably gonna have a disappointing answer because I don't think I followed the situation too closely. Uh, I saw it on Twitter, but you know, um, uh, I, I didn't follow the situation too closely. So, uh, uh I, this might be very more general. Um, I think it's like kind of a, a couple of things, right? Um, you know, I think if you kind of look at any sort of technology shift over the last you know, 20, 30 years, uh, there's kind of been like a period of time when, you know, we've kind of hit, oh, here's this amazing new platform. It can do a bunch of amazing things. And then there's a bunch of like, you know, uh, I think there's two things which happened, right? I actually don't remember the details in this case. I think it was kind of a error of some sort. It wasn't like a malicious hacker, um, you know, and as of, but, you know, in the last six, seven months, there have been like, you know, multiple famous incidents, you know, the the wormhole incident, there's a few other famous incidents where there are actually, you know, people on the other side. So I think there are kind of two broad sets of things which happened. Like one is, uh, you know, um, uh, engineers and developers over time, you know, discover like what are the patterns and practices and make like painful errors. Uh, I have like a page right from the 90s where I just get to the other story, other version of this is they're just bad guys and you know the bad guys get smarter and then the good guys get smarter and there's kind of like a warfare uh, which keeps going on and i think we've seen this over time and time again uh, one of my favorite stories is from a close friend of mine steven sanofsky uh you know who we all make fun of you know uh, because for all this history of windows and office he's amazing he's you know he's one of the most senior people at microsoft and he was running office, um, or probably in a very senior role at office in the late 90s. Do any of you remember the I love you bug? Right? Um, I do uh, remember okay. it vaguely, yes. Gosh, I'm dating myself. Uh, this is No, I remember this. My dad, it was the it was like an email that went oh out from God, AOL. It, well, no, it was, like a, it was like an email that went out from AOL where like it, you, it sent out to your entire address book. I remember this hitting my dad. It was an email that went out to your entire email address book that just said, I love you. Uh, and so it was the subject line was, I love you. And so like a bunch of your colleagues were getting an email from you saying, I love you. And people clicked yeah. it and opened it and it continued to spread. And it was like this malicious, it was malware or something, right? Exactly. By the way, half your audience is going, I have no idea what the I love you bug is. And the other half are just feeling triggered that you just said, well, I know this because my dad, you know, told me, well, back in my day. We well, no, I just remember when this happened to my dad and it was a big deal. Cause it was like the first hack I had experienced too. 
it, it was kind of like a big part. And what what have happened, you know, is basically sort of like, you know, um, misuse and scripting capabilities. And Steven Stonsky has this great story of how he got all these phone calls, you know, from all these reporters saying like, what the heck is going on? And, you know, Microsoft's involved in this. And, you know, even without knowing what is going on, he was like, well, we're going to beef up security. You know, I think was it Outlook Express or Outlook? And we're going to make it harder to run scripting code, etc. right? And so I think there's kind of this constant, you know, uh, the good guys, put up more defenses, the good guys teach developers how to write better code, uh, you know, audit more code, you know, there are kind of like open source repositories or patterns and practices, and the bad guys do Now, crypto obviously has a uh, uh, an added sort of incentive because it is like real economics at stake, um, you know, which makes it a lot more lucrative. Uh, but, you know, I, I think, you know, uh, one thing I've been seeing is that there's just so much community effort on just making things more secure. Like, here's a plug, uh, on the, uh, I don't, you know, uh, we kind of recording this in near the end of April and on the A16Z side we put out a blog post from the security team on you know who uh, Riaz who kind of works on a bunch of our security efforts and a couple of others talking about like a bunch of security practices right so it's going to be a constantly evolving thing we probably haven't seen the last of it but I think the community is going to get stronger with each one yeah well the interesting thing that you pointed out there so it was a Dutch auction um, which for people that aren't familiar it starts at the top and sort of steps down until you find the buyers for the entire pool um and basically they were going to issue refunds to anybody that bid above what the ultimate uh resting price was on the auction and um it ended up that all of those funds because of a mishap in the code that got exploited uh basically got locked and trapped and to the credit of the team you know it was a coding mishap they basically didn't audit the code sufficiently to make it function at the appropriate level to the credit of the team they came out of pocket from the treasury to refund the people that were supposed to get refunded and micah who i will admit as a friend i thought handled it uh with a lot of grace in terms of just stepping up owning it and um you know and basically saying we're going to build back brick by brick and it doesn't change the quality of the world that we're trying to build the point that you made uh sriram that i thought is also interesting is the way that Web3 works um, around, you know, like someone came and exploited this, like somebody exploited this mishap in the code. Now, in a market level, this became a big incident. A lot of people knew about it. It shines a huge light on making this type of mistake in the code. That should not happen again now because so much money was lost in some in a mishap like this. The next people that are going to build the next project should actually benefit from the fact that this has happened because now they've learned there's been a light shined on this. Someone's going to audit that specific piece of code very carefully. And so you have this like market mechanism now to hopefully continuously improve. So for everyone that shines a light on like, oh, there was this mishap in the code and look at all the money that was lost, Web3 is broken, et cetera. Actually, the flip side of that argument would say that now everyone gets to know that exact mistake that can be made and improve in future projects against it. So I think it's really interesting. I think so. I think with every one of these, the you know, the patterns and practices, you know, you you probably wind up making different mistakes. Like we live in a world of technology and code, uh, you know, um, and we can throw a lot of tools at it, and a lot of interesting new tools from like formal verification to auditing. But there's always going to be like threats, like you know, for example, you know, there are uh, you, you know what folks what APTs are like advanced persistent threats, which basically means you know, uh, governments like you know folks like North Korea or other countries you can imagine trying to go after you. So there'll always be these people. Um, but you know, I think. You know, just kind of build on something you said. I uh, uh, I didn't follow this incident pretty closely, but I always find it very remarkable when communities can 
survive and continue with legitimacy. One of my favorite blog posts in the last several years, not just in crypto, in anything is from Vitalik. It's called Legitimacy is, uh, you know, the, the best cash resource. If you haven't seen it, we can probably drop a link in it or something. Go check it out. Um, and it talks about how, you know, one of the, you know, one of the things that crypto really deals with, and not just life, or not just crypto, but life, is how scarce legitimacy is. I'll give you an example. All of you probably remember the DAO hack, right? You know, it's kind of the famous thing which caused uh, this uh, Ethereum fork. And I think only recently did we actually figure out actually what might have happened, uh, you know, because of the book this came out. Um, um, but, you know, at one time, you know, there was this big question of, you know, will ETH actually survive? Um, and in a lot of ways, I think it was Metallic and the community having the credibility which made them all, you know, switch and, you know, actually survive. And obviously, you know, they've done really, really well since then. So, you know, I, I sometimes think about there's a monetary aspect, but one of the most interesting things for me about Web3, uh, you know, as kind of a cultural social force is sort of legitimacy, technology and economics kind of all being mushed together, right? Uh, because I used to work in social media and, you know, we did with social capital, like you know, people having millions of followers, but there's not real economics tied to it. But Web3 kind of brings those together, which I think is really, really interesting. I'll give uh, I'll give my point of view on this because I... I do a ton of drops uh, via our agency, Late Checkout. So we, we build drops. And if I ever have bags under my eyes, it's because we're doing a drop that day. Um, I, I think my what I would love is I would love Web 2 infrastructure in a Web 3 world. And what I mean by that is in Web Sounds 3... Sounds like a great song title, by the way. <laughs> exactly. A great, a great song title. What I mean by that is like, a lot of the time what we're doing in Web3 is we're writing custom contracts, custom software, um, or we're grabbing multiple things and sort of putting it together. And, bec and because of that, and, and also because there's a shortage of talent, um, and because people just haven't been doing this that long, um, a lot of the time there's mistakes. Um, and there's a lot of processes that you can do to to mitigate the mistakes and like what we have a ton of those processes in place like for example like when you do your first mint you know make sure that you can withdraw the ethereum from that first mint to somewhere else make sure it's not locked and there's like a hundred things like that that you can do um but my only advice to people listening who potentially want to do a drop is it's important to 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 basically have those processes in place and, and, you know, work with people who've, you know, aren't doing their first drop, you know, work with people who've done multiple drops, I think is really, really important. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to switch gears a little bit and talk about Twitter because that's, that's, that's on my mind right now. Um, and Did something happen with Twitter? Did it happen? Oh, wait, oh, you just stole my line, Sal. You just stole my line. <laughs> so... You know, we're sitting here. Uh, it's been about 24 hours since Elon Musk has been, uh, you know, it's approved that he's buying Twitter. So it's very exciting. Um, do we think that Elon is going to make Twitter a more Web3 version of Twitter? And if so, what would that look like? Good question. By the way, I have to say, you know, if you follow the story for the last uh, couple of weeks uh, from, you know, him, you know, revealing that he has a stake, going on the board and all of that, it's only been two weeks. So I don't know when you folks plan on getting this podcast out, but this could be like hopelessly out of date by the time, you know, we might as well be talking about something in the 90s, uh, given how fast the story has moved. Uh, no, I, so 
first of all, I just want to say like, you know, Twitter is a company and a product which is just very special to me on multiple levels. Uh, one is, uh, you know, just my personal story. Like, I think so much of my professional connections, personal connections, uh, uh, you know, have come through Twitter. You know, I'm pretty sure like Sal and I started DMing on Twitter at one point in time. Uh, I made a lot of relationships uh, through Twitter. Uh, I also, you know, over the years, you know, built up a little bit of a, a following and people have been kind of been so good to me on Twitter. That's on just on the personal side. I also worked there for a few years and, you know, had uh, ran a, a variety of products over there. So uh, I got to see the company on the inside. I worked closely with Jack and the team over there. Uh, so I feel like I'm very connected and, you know, very grateful for the product in multiple ways. Now, uh, okay, there's Phoenix. There's, there's things which I think Elon has said that he would do. Uh, and there's things which I would, you know, I would love for somebody to do and, you know, that somebody might be Elon or somebody I think might be fun if we uh, do that. So I think what Elon has talked about uh, in public so far has been, A, you know, he wants to, you know, he has a whole point of view about content moderation and censorship and free speech, which we can probably get into if you want to get into that. Uh, he's talking about bots um, and he's talked about, uh, you know, just kind of just improving the product, right? Um, and I think a lot of people have very, very strong views, to put it mildly, on Elon and some of these, but uh, uh, which you can also get into. Uh, but for me, you know, uh, you know, I, and I think in some ways, I think we even Jack has talked about is I would love to see Twitter get decentralized. And it might be interesting to kind of like talk about like what that actually means. And I have no idea whether Elon. Uh, I don't think Elon has really talked about it. Jack has a little bit, but I don't think Elon has talked about it. So we'll have to see. Uh, so uh, I think the best way to uh, talk about it is through analogy, right? So we all grew up using, you know, email. Um, and I remember April 1st, I think it was 2004, when there was a rumor of Google launching this new email product, which had one gigabyte of free space. And, you know, you could, you know, the invites were really, really hard to get. But fun fact, I tried to impress my now wife, Arti, uh, back when I was wooing her by getting her one of these really hard to get invites. And we got married. So, uh, uh, kids, that's a story for you there. Uh, you know, but, you know, but the truth is, email had existed for, I think, a couple of decades, you know, before Gmail came along. Um, and even to this day, right, you all just using TCP IP and SMTP and IMAP and POP, I can send you an email, no Google, nobody else in the middle, right? So there is a protocol, uh, you know, which is built on SMTP, IMAP, POP, etc. And there's a bunch of like infrastructure that goes along with it. Then there are a bunch of clients. Like I grew up in a uh, age when like Yahoo and Hotmail email addresses were really popular. Then Gmail became popular. And all of us, I'm sure, had a variety of like work email addresses and so on. So, um, but at no one time did when you forced to use one company's product. It's not as if like Google says, hey, you know what, folks, you're off Gmail today and then you're banned from the world of email, right? So I think that that is one lens of decentralization, which I think of it as like, you know, you can pick the client that you want to use. And by the way, the Gmail client, very different from, you know, your client. I, by the way, I'm one of these nerds who likes to sometimes check email with Emacs. Uh, Gnu's fans represent, uh, I'm sure you have no idea what I'm talking about, but that just perfectly works. You don't need Google in the middle. Um, and I think there's something really powerful about that concept of, uh, hey, there is a right to exit. Even if I don't, even if I can't use Google or Google makes me not use them for some reason, I have an alternative. That's one very important, uh, you know, factor. The other important factor is you can build your own client experience. Right. So, for example, Gmail has a spam algorithm. They have a recommendation algorithm. Right. All those different things. But that's not what Gmail is doing on the client. It does nothing about the nature of email itself. Like, in fact, you know, I'm sure if you have like a non-Gmail client, they're not as sometimes good as spam. They don't do the recommendation or whatever. So, 
And so you have a client which is doing AI and ML, which is trying to detect a spam or not, trying to sort into operas or social or all things that Gmail does. So what you're having is you have a protocol which basically kind of transmitting you know, uh, electrons, really. Uh, but then you have a client layer which is doing AI, recommendation gmail tries to guess at what you might be interested in viewing it tries to you know send out all the you know the viagra ads often to spam like it does all those things for you now um it, you know when you think about say twitter i, I don't mean to pick on twitter because twitter, i think is a very special company or facebook any one of these companies i've been very grateful for all things they've done to me i think amazing companies but you don't have a choice right like if twitter says you're up you're up it's not like you can code up something on emacs and be like oh i'm going to use twitter in my own way so there is no right to exit which i think is like one key bit on decentralization so this is one key factor now the second key factor is uh now there's this whole debate on speech content moderation we can by the way i was there on the inside we can spend hours talking about this right and i think you know beginning and you know we probably won't make most people happy but let me kind of like oversimplify right there is one set of people who think certain sets of things should be allowed to be said on twitter there's another set of people who think certain things should not be allowed to say on twitter right incredibly broad oversimplification here folks that's the name of the game now the challenge is um, if any one of these people say you know uh, you know win or you know are right uh, on twitter the other side has no alternative you're basically banned from twitter like you have nowhere else to go the same doesn't uh, exist for email right on email like even if gmail bans you that's fine you know i can still find a way to get email to you now of course you know you, you may not use the email client that actually need it or whatever so i think that's also important in terms of like uh, Twitter needs to be decentralized, one, into a protocol, so people can use a different client. The second is they can use their algorithms of choice, right? So you could get banned off, say, you know, the Twitter that, uh, let's pick an example. Uh, 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 okay, name your favorite Twitter personality. Today's episode is brought to you by Marketer Hire. With Marketer Hire, you can get expert marketers on demand. It's easy and fast. What's Marketer Hire? Simply put, Marketer Hire is a marketplace for marketing talent. They built a network of expert marketing professionals pre-vetted by top marketers from well-known and high-growth brands. And then they use their proprietary Marketer Match technology to match clients with the best marketer for every single project. And they match them fast, typically within 48 hours or less. There's zero risk. You don't sign or pay anything unless you choose to work with someone. Many of my startups in the portfolio are using Marketer Hire and absolutely love it. If you're a growing business, you will too. Check them out today at marketerhire.com. Again, that's marketerhire.com. And tell them Sahil sent you. Elon Musk. Uh, well, let's pick somebody from Marvel. <laughs> um, my favorite VC Twitter personality... Uh, um shoot this is while a tough you're one. thinking about it i'll give you nikita beer yeah All nikita's right. a good one nikita, let's, let's no i don't want to give nikita that much credit okay fine yeah. nikita hopefully let's nikita doesn't nikita. hear this uh well, well oh yeah well nikita uh, nikita deserves all of this right he deserves it uh so uh, let's pick nikita Twitter, right let us say nikita you know uh you know what you know nikita obviously is a brutal dictator i mean look i know the guy right he's gonna be a brutal dictator and nikita says look you know on my twitter you know all of you are gone right it's going to be me and logan and you know a bunch of people i like and a bunch of people i control everybody else is just gone from my twitter 
If you do that, right, that's fine. Because you can still go use, uh, you know, I don't know, like Serum Twitter or Sal Twitter or Greg Twitter, and you can be perfectly fine. Now, of course, we're kind of joking around here because the stakes are much higher. Like today, if you get removed of Twitter, right, you lose a massive audience on what is a world which can really shape the discourse. And I think that's kind of the other part of decentralization, which is you can say, hey, you know what, I can pick... I was, I was expecting to talk about Nikita Twitter today on this podcast, right? But so you can be like, hey, I pick Nikita Twitter, which has a certain set of algorithms. So maybe Nikita Twitter says, look, when you open up Twitter, Nikita's tweets are going to be pinged like 500 pixels at the very top, and then you get everything else because yeah, that's the rules, right, for Nikita Twitter. And if you want, and Nikita Twitter is the best product, you use it. If you don't want it, you can pick a different algorithm. By the way, on Twitter, we've tried to do this also over there. So we've tried to say, hey, you know, maybe we should have uh, ranking algorithms. Maybe we should do only latest. There's always been this controversy of only latest or ranking, which, by the way, took up three years of my life, which we can also talk about uh, if you're interested. But I think the point here is you don't have a choice. And so decently, I think there's one is a right of exit when you can pick any client. And the second part of decent, which is really interesting, is when you pick the client, you now have a choice of the algorithm. So for example, just like Gmail picks a spam algorithm for you, Nikita Twitter, which is going to be now trending on Twitter after this, can pick the algorithm for you, right? And of course, I'm, we're kind of goofing around here, but I think you kind of see you know, how you know, choice can be really important. So this is one level of decentralization. Now, let's get, now where it gets really interesting is, uh, Sal, how many followers do you have on Twitter? Uh, 575,000. Okay, so that's quite a bit, right? You know, Sal, Sal is like a fa- fa- popular guy. Right uh, now, you know, so I could argue, and I'm very critical, that you add value to Twitter, right? I mean, you there are 500,000 people who follow you and get value, so you're adding some value to the company, right? Now, I hope so. When was the last time Twitter sent you a check for your 500,000 followers and the work you do on Twitter? I haven't seen one yet, unfortunately. Oh. Okay, when was the last time they asked you for input into a decision that they're making in their offices in San Francisco? Uh, very rarely. Well. You know, so I, by the way, you know, again, I was at Twitter. I don't mean pick on them, but you, you know, like you know, when seven to eight years ago, when social media, when, maybe ten years ago, when social media came out, the concept of social, this, so there was kind of a, a, an agreement on social media, right? The agreement was we will give you an audience, and you in turn will give us content, right? And that's that's the deal, right? And you grow your audience, and, and by the way, you know, we will show ads against it, and you know, it'll be great business. So that was kind of the deal. But over the years, I think that concept has slowly shifted. Like, I think the rise of the creator economy, the rise of companies like Cameo has been like kind of a shift where, you know, you've seen these creators who are like, Saul is a creator, right? Like, Saul could be like, hey, you know what? You know, I, you know, I deserve to be compensated for my service to Twitter because we can obviously see he's adding some value uh, to Twitter. Now, I think Web3 so and... Ju- yes. Just to pause you there. So the flip side argument to this is something that our friend uh, at Sweaty Startup, Nick Huber, tweeted out, um, which is a flip of this entire model, which is that large creators should actually have to pay more uh, for use of the platform um, as their audience scales. So rather than me getting paid or me being able to harvest value, the whole idea is like, look, I have not been paid by Twitter. No, I have not gotten a check from them, but I have made a whole lot of money off of having a large following broadly from a lot of different things, you know, and the, that fact probably holds for a lot of people that have large audiences who are active on the platform. Maybe not like famous people that just have a large yeah. audience for the sake of it, but people who have built audiences on the platform have, have monetized 
pretty effectively. And Nick was saying, and got a lot of flack for it, that basically it should be a fee that you pay per follower. So per 1,000 followers, you pay you know a dollar per month or something. So I'd be paying $500 a month um, you know, plus in order to use Twitter, and it would kind of scale up. And it was an interesting thought experiment. He got massively dragged for it, as he does on a lot of things that he tweets. Um, but it was kind of an interesting flip of the model that you're talking about. Well, I, I didn't see the tweet, but uh, uh, but you know, I kind of reject. I, I think I disagree with the premise, and the reason is, um, you know, let us say, for example, you were forced to pay Twitter, right? And an alternative social platform came to you, and they said, you know what, you're paying those folks. Like, why don't you come over to us, and we will pay you instead? Now we see this happen all the time. Like, you know, you know, like you know, streaming companies like a Netflix and a HBO compete for movie makers, or podcast companies, you know, sign up, you know, compete to who gets an exclusive to some famous person's next podcast. So. You, you basically, the market will decide. And I think what Web3 is doing or could do for Twitter is give give the people who give value to Twitter two things. One is economics, and the second is governance. So what economics means is uh, imagine, and I bet I'm just making stuff up, you know, I have no idea how this could actually work, uh, you know, but imagine there is a token, and you, uh, and the token basically incentivizes behavior. Uh, you know, this is a very naive version. It basically says, you know what, Sal should tweet X number of times and this tweet should be positive and it should spark the right kind of conversation. You should do it over a long period of time. So it's not like, you know, you can take a check and then um, run away. Um, and, you know, and, and, but it's somehow commiserate with the value of adding to Twitter. All of a sudden, you know, I think two things happen. One, you're getting rewarded for the work that you're putting in. Um, second, that token could be tied to governance, and you know we can like, get it a bit kind of obvious if you kind of follow like you know a lot of like stuff is happening. But you, you could be like, hey, when Twitter decides you know to make you know to ship something new or a different algorithm change, you could have a, a stake in it. So it's kind of the very bare bones basic version of what could happen. But let's get more interesting, right? Imagine you could say, hey, you know what? You know, uh, when I'm, you know, when somebody new comes into Twitter, because you know own Twitter token, you want the token to grow in value. I want to bring in new people. So Sal could be like, hey, there's an, uh, you know, Joe unknown over here, and I'm going to stake my token in him because I really believe in this guy uh, or them, right? And I believe they're going to be good for Twitter, right? Because you know, have kind of like a value which accrues when they do really, really well. We do this today, by the way, right, in Twitter in a subtle way. We do this using social capital. Now, I have this whole theory, by the way, if I go on a tangent about how Twitter is all about social capital, which is not converted to financial capital. Like right now, if I quote tweet Sahil and say, follow this guy, right? Like I am sort of imbuing or giving Sahil some of my social capital. I may say, hey, I endorse this person. I'm going to trust that, you know, you trust me that I'm not a jerk. And if Sahil doesn't want to be like somebody terrible to follow, my followers can be like, oh my gosh, like Sahil is just a total muppet. Right. But so you kind of stake, you're putting something on the line, which is why like quote tweeting kind of means something unless you're dunking, of course. So uh, but in a token world, all these mechanics can be brought in and formalized in some really, really interesting way. So imagine, for example, somebody is like, you know, can be an investor in the next big Twitter user. Uh, where they can be like, I'm going to go and find maybe the next Charlie D'Amelio of Twitter or, you know, the next, you know, uh, the Dwayne Johnson or uh, well, pick somebody who's kind of like social media native celebrity. So a lot of things will start opening up. And then users could have a direct voice. Instead of this model now where you have a bunch of people making decisions, you could be like, hey, I don't agree with your latest algorithm change or I don't agree with changing to dark mode or just go ship edit. I don't care what you say. I just want you to ship edit and let's take it to a vote. So those things will be really transformative. I'll just end on this one thought. Uh, I'm going to steal a lot of lines from, you know, Chris Dixon, who heads up our crypto fund, who's kind of really, you know, all the credit for A16 and crypto should really go to him. He basically tweaks Bezos's line of your margin is my opportunity. And he says, you see this a lot in Web3. 
where there's kind of some value which is not being given to the right set of stakeholders and Web3 kind of fills in that spot. Like we see this as artists, right? Artists, there's so many middlemen between the music and their fans. But I think you might see this in social media and we actually seen, start seeing some very interesting companies, uh, hopefully I can talk about them soon, which are taking the same model to social media or just kind of community-based products uh, too. And saying like, hey, you're not rewarding your stakeholders appropriately. We can empower and reward them appropriately. Anyway, I'll kind of stop there. Okay, so there's a ton to unpack here. Um, and I have a handful of pushbacks, I suppose, to, to a bunch of this. So um, social tokens uh, is like a general concept that I think you kind of talked about or around that I find conceptually quite interesting. Um, you know, the cynic in me says that this stuff just like sort of asymptotes to being like a Ponzi scheme and you're like, where's the real value and how is it, you know, has it being created or managed? Is any of this stuff, um, in your guys's opinion, viable for them to actually like progressively decentralize or layer any of this into existing Twitter or does it have to be built into a completely different platform where you're trying to like spin up scale? Uh, it's a great question. Um, I'll, I'll try to attack it in a few ways, right? I think there is kind of a, there's a technical answer, there is an economic answer, then there's going to be kind of a social cultural answer. Um, you know, on the technical and economic answer, that's why there's this great paper by one of my, um, you know, teammates, Miles Jennings. He's a uh, general counsel for ACC Crypto, but he's just kind of a real genius when it comes to all things decentralization. It's probably the pin tweet. It's like a 25-page paper. It talks about how companies in Web3 can progressively decentralize. And there are actually some social media-style examples in there. So, and it talks about different kinds of decentralization. Like, there's a kind of a technical architecture. There's kind of a legal architecture. And I think there's a special one for Twitter given to existing company. So, the technical architecture, I think, is kind of a sequence of steps, right? Like, the first step would be kind of my Gmail, uh, you know, SMTP example. Imagine a world where Twitter says, hey, instead of just using the one blue app or, or Twitter.com, you can use any app and it's perfectly fine. And you can use the algorithm of choice. And all we're going to do is provide you the API of choice. By the way, you see this in Web3 today, right? Like there are companies, like for example, you, know, yeah, you could, Uniswap website you know, it can go up and it's perfectly fine because it's a kind of a protocol which runs by itself and you don't need an actual website. There are multiple clients which can do the work of the, the website. So Twitter could basically say, hey, the Twitter.com URL and the website or the app is just one lens, but it doesn't really matter. You can pick any lens, right? We, whether we intuitively know that about Gmail, you know that you can use Superhuman, you know that you can use Outlook, and you can you know you can use the Gmail app, and you know it's all the same view on your email, and it's kind of fine. But imagine the same for Twitter. So that is like, I would say, step one, um, um, where you're like one of many, and then everyone is kind of equal. Uh, step two would be some form of like token that I describe. And I will be the first to uh, admit that a lot of this has to be figured out. We have some ideas, you know, there are some amazing founders working on this space, but it has to be figured out in terms of how do you incentivize creators? How do you incentivize various clients? Like, for example, you need different people to build, you know, the versions of Gmail client or Thunderbird or Superhuman or one of the, the equivalents of Twitter. So I think it's all like to be interesting. So that's on one side. Um, and I think it's kind of like a the sort of a legal sort of variation of this of how do you do this in a way, uh, you know, where, uh, you know, the, where you kind of like pass the hinky test. 
Now, I think the harder problem, to be super honest with you, is cultural. I, I don't have a great answer for that. Um, I, I think, like, so far, a lot of what we have seen in Web3 is Web3 native companies from the ground up. And I don't have, like, a really good existence proof of somebody who used to be Web2 but now moved into Web3. So it's going to be hard lift, right? Because you have to turn over power and economics to your community. And I think it's a hard cultural shift. But, but I'll say, having said that, if somebody can pull it off, Elon would be the person to pull it off. Can you, can you, so Ben Thompson wrote an amazing piece, maybe like a week ago, like back to Twitter's future, I think it was called, where he, he sort of sketched out a world where um, in a private market, you could separate Twitter into effectively two companies where it's like current business model with the social graph and the ad monetization existed as one company. And then there was sort of like a Twitter services company that licensed access to the social graph plugged in via APIs. And then that kind of becomes like an open protocol layer where people can build on top of it, gain access to the social graph and the great high value part of Twitter, but build in their own ecosystems on top of it in an open world. That kind of strikes me as like an interesting middle ground that you could start to see a sort of transition. Like if it becomes a more open ecosystem, it's been traditionally this closed ecosystem. And personally, I think that that has made it so that Twitter was not able to innovate. They were trying to do everything like exclusively in-house with their own engineers rather than, I mean, I'm a free market guy, right? So like, I, I believe that harnessing the value of amazing innovators everywhere is the way for these platforms to you know exist and thrive. By the way, so I should, you know, just to in Twitter's defense, right? Like, there's a good reason why they did what they did, though it was unpopular. The reason was ads, right? So for the last ten years, well, the early part of the last decade, actually, the dominant internet model that people knew how to make work was advertising. So Twitter had like, basically two choices, right? The early part of the last decade. By the way, this is I wasn't there. I'm kind of speaking like from what I've heard from other people. One was you could build an API business. And, you know, where, you know, you basically charge people for access to tweets and then people, you know, build clients or did things where they paid money for that. Uh, and by the way, other people actually tried to build companies. If you remember Dalton Caldwell, who's now at Y Combinator, built a company called App.net, which was purely like API Twitter. Uh, and uh, the other model was ads. Uh, it turned out, and, you know, who knows at the time, like, you know, um, we don't know that the ads model was much more lucrative, easier to kind of like figure out than... API Twitter was. Now, you could play you could play hindsight and you could be like, you know, maybe they didn't execute well, they didn't have the right people in place. We don't know. But they said, okay, we're going to do ads. Now, the challenge is when you want to do ads is you need to actually show ads to people because you're going and telling advertisers, hey, we have all these human beings and they're like, great, but half your users are using a client which does not show ads, right? And they're like, so you don't have a real problem. And I think that actually pushed Twitter over the years. Say, like, if look, if you're in the media business and you're showing ads, you need to be actually show the ads to people. So I think that's why it led them down this road. And look, I'm not totally defending them because I think uh, you know a lot of startups, you know, uh, uh, you know, were destroyed. Like Chris Dixon, you know, was kind of close to a lot of those companies, and they very rightly feel agreed. But I think that's kind of what the sequence of events would wind up happening. Yeah. Now, I think, but I think what we're talking about now is now that you're a private company, a lot of options now open up. Right? Maybe you don't need to do ads anymore. Maybe you can do a subscription business. Subscriptions weren't really a thing like eight, ten years ago. Uh, like for example, like Greg and Sal, how much would you pay for access to every year? How much thousands would I pay? of dollars? You would? Um, yeah, I mean, we, yeah, I mean, I, I make Twitter. a lot of money off of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we use Twitter. I mean, it's like in a lot of ways, it's like how much do how much would we spend on like business events and networking events and travel? Right? It's like the same sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I'd pay, I'd pay a thousand dollars a month 
Yeah, me too. Probably, to. pro- yeah. probably even more, just given the value it gives me, right, professionally. So, um, you know, maybe there's a world, and this, this model didn't really exist 10, 11 years ago. So maybe there's a world they do subscriptions. But I think now that they're a private company, that some of the pressure is off of them. Where Elon can do this. Anyway, sorry. I need to stop you there. So okay. I... So public company, like totally agree. Ad model, they've had to do it. Public market, it was their golden goose. It was the only way they were generating revenue. Their ad stack sucks. Uh, They serve up really bad ads. There's no signal, really bad conversion. Like it's just a bad ad stack. And so when advertisers are comparing it to like Snapchat, Instagram, you know, TikTok, all the other places they can advertise, it's never really performed really well, especially not on direct response advertising, which is the most lucrative. So... um. They now go into the private market. Everyone is like, oh, now they can experiment and do things. Sort of agree, sort of disagree. There's $25 billion of debt sitting on the business now. And that debt has interest rates on it that aren't super low. And in an environment where so far the the baseline rate is rising right now, it's actually going to be a shitload of interest payments that they're going to have to be paying. So you can't just like... A lot of people have been asserting that he can just like go rogue on the model and shut off ad monetization, but someone has to pay the interest. And like, and so I like Jack tweeted today this whole tweet about, um, oh, it's a great step to take back Twitter from Wall Street. And I was kind of like, yes, yeah, sort of, but $25 billion of debt doesn't really feel to me like it's taking back, you know, Twitter from Wall Street. It's just different hands on Wall Street that now own a whole bunch of Twitter. And if things go wrong, it's not very good. The other thing I would point out, and this is all just from my like private equity days that I come back to it in my head, is Elon took out a 12, uh, I think it's like $12.5 billion of the purchase price is a margin loan against his Twitter stock uh, or against his Tesla stock. What that means is, uh, he doesn't have to sell his Tesla stock and bankers are loaning him $12.5 billion that has recourse to his Tesla stock. So if the value um, or if he's unable to pay the interest on it or if something happens, they can go grab his Tesla stock as the collateral against that. The challenge of that, which I would not be happy about if I were a Tesla shareholder, by the way, is if Tesla drops for whatever reason, they miss a couple of quarterly earnings, if the stock starts to come down, those bankers are going to get a little nervous about the value of that Tesla stock and the coverage they have against it. They can ask him to put up more collateral against that $12.5 billion margin loan. How does he do that? He has to sell assets that he has in order to put up cash collateral. What assets does he have? It's all Tesla stock that's liquid. So suddenly you get into this like bad spiral of he's having to put up more cash as collateral against that loan. And the only way to put up more cash against that um, is by selling Tesla stock. So Tesla stock's dropping, you get called for more collateral, you have to sell more Tesla stock, which further pushes down the price of it. It's like, this is literally how people have gone bank. I'm not saying that's going to happen to them, but this spiral of like taking out a loan against your stock, having the stock drop and having to sell the stock to put up more cash against that loan is the spiral that leads to people going bankrupt sometimes. So it's not like a fun thing, actually, by the way, for Tesla shareholders here. Um, and I don't think that's something that anyone's talking about. Well, look, I, I, I have absolutely no insight into sort of the financial engineering here. Uh, okay, first, but I just want to say, I want to kind of defend the Twitter ads team. You know, I think you know, there are some really amazing people there. They try really hard. Uh, you know, we can sort of get into, you know, sort of the They try really that. hard. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, but I, I think there's, you know, there's some really good tech there, and I think they actually deliver some great results from brand advertisers. Uh, you know, I have a bunch of friends there, so I'd be remiss if I didn't like point that out. Um, look, I have no insight in the financial engineering, but I will say 
it, 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 one of the things I think this one of the ways and we obviously what happens nobody knows you know by the time this podcast comes out the whole situation could have shifted one of the ways this could help is you know you now are off the earnings treadmill and you now have maybe a longer leash on time to go build something right totally. um, and I've seen this with like other companies in the past where you're some, sometimes on this treadmill where you can't really go take like a deep long-term bet uh, that's kind of one dynamic the other dynamic is I mean, Elon's like a strong, opinionated guy, right? He has opinions, so and he's going to go try them out. And I think having somebody who has like a very clear sense of what he wants, and by the way, a lot of people on Twitter may not agree with what he wants, but that's you know, um, but you know, but he has, definitely has a strong opinion. And the second part is having sort of the bandwidth or the runway to go go for it instead of being like well you know if we you know this we can't actually get out of this dynamic because you know our employees are used to drop and it's going to cause a lot of people to leave and it's going to be this whole thing so um uh, I, i'm very excited because i think for the first time look we're all talking about twitter there's a bunch of energy in the air uh, yeah. it, you know, it feels like they could try out a bunch of stuff they could ship edit they could try out a bunch of stuff and uh it's a it's a service which i think is very valuable to humanity i'm yeah. very excited i do I do hope and believe long term it's going to be decentralized. I do think it's a. I think Twitter's ethos has always been about the community. It's always been about the community, and we are in service of the community. So it feels natural for me, some way, that the community someday should own Twitter in some shape or form. By the way, Jack has actually talked about this. You know, if you look at Blue Sky, you know, uh, I'm not terribly familiar with how well Blue Sky has progressed, but the idea behind Blue Sky originally was that Twitter should be decentralized in some shape or form. So uh, I think it is always the art. Hopefully, it gets there someday, but it is not boring right now. Saha, so I want to clarify the the point around like the governance token and what that means, the social token piece mm-hmm. and what, and what you're, I'm saying around, like, what does it look like if Twitter users like have a piece of this pie in, in, in forms of tokens? So did you see when Elon Musk tweeted uh, different polls about like basically where he should take Twitter? Like, should we ship an ep- uh, edit button? And, mm-hmm. you know, should we open source the algorithm and people were voting on it? Did you see that? Mm-hmm. So we voted you know, millions of people voted and Elon could basically, you know, if 99% said we need an edit button and 1% said no, Elon, if he's the new owner, could basically say like, you know what, I don't feel like shipping an edit button. But if we actually had tokens that represented uh, some amount of governance, what I'm saying is he would, if if it was on chain, he would actually have to go and do it. And that's a really, really powerful concept. Yeah, I, I, that makes sense to me. What I would say is like my pushback to you guys on that is I think that all sounds great when everything's going well um, and when it's sort of peacetime, quote unquote. But when you are in wartime and having to make dramatic, you know, bold decisions quickly, the idea of going and asking, you know, a hundred million users to vote on something and trusting that it's going to be the right long-term decision when they're operating with imperfect information relative to you as the general is a little scary to me. And so like, that's my general pushback or maybe not pushback even. That's my general question for DAOs um, as a prospective future. I love the idea of community governance. I love the idea of communities owning more of the equity of a startup if they've created a ton of value. But I do have serious questions about the ability of a community at scale to make rapid, bold decisions yeah. uh, during it, wartime. I, I, it, wait, I just want to... 
my pushback to that, the first thing that comes to mind is, isn't that the democratic society that we live in? Like, we no. vote. No, no, it's not. Actually, because we live in a representative, I, a representative democracy, right? Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let yeah. me, let me, exp- let me, first of all, this is, this, kind of, yeah, we have that let me, let me explain, let me explain myself. And by the way, this is coming from someone who doesn't vote in the American elections because I, I, I'm not allowed to because I'm, I'm an immigrant and who doesn't follow v- politics at all. So take it with a grain of salt. But from the way I understand how politics work is, or d- democratic countries work is you vote and depending on what country you live in, like let's say in the US, I, I think there's a Senate and there's a Congress and these people are voted in or sworn in. And then you sort of trust that these people who represent you are going to make decisions. Is that is that yes. correct? Yes. So, but that's the exact same as like a shareholder of a public company voting for board okay. members at the you know pr- proxy, whatever, and you vote the board members and you vote the CEO in or out. And then you trust that they're making the decisions. And I like, so, I actually think that works reasonably well. Yeah. I think, I think social tokens in a lot of ways are, is very much like owning a share in a company and getting a vote. The only, it's just the only difference in it is instead of like, if I want to vote in, in a Twitter shareholder meeting, I have to go and buy Twitter stock. And I'm not sure that I can vote on like product decisions. However, with um if if you know what true i'm saying is basically if you know you brought a lot of value to the network and you were able you were rewarded with tokens for giving that value it doesn't make a difference if you didn't have the money to buy those tokens but because you created that value you would have the ability to influence the product yeah i think that i mean like i think the ethos of that makes a ton of sense right like if i i I have contributed more value to Twitter um, and like probably more innovation to Twitter than some random billionaire that owns a hundred million dollars of Twitter stock. Like just full stop. I, I understand the product probably better. I understand the puts and takes. I understand the ecosystem better. And um, if I were to have received like governance tokens accordingly with the value that I've created and could have a say in the decision making and the changes in the product and the development, I definitely would be more valuable to them than some random person. And so right now in the system, it's just driven off of dollars. And so a really rich person has more influence than a poor person, even if the poor person has done so much more for the community. Totally agree with the ethos and and, and what you're saying there. I'm just curious to see how it actually plays out um, in a more challenging you know, environment and context. Yeah, I mean, if I, just, just to close on this, you know, if I could zoom out, I think the internet has kind of always had some version of what a DAO is. Like, I grew up in the open source world, right? And you always had this kind of, you know, BDFLs, these benevolent dictators for life, like Guido for Python and Linux for Linux. And the idea was, you know, they were there, just like Vitalik for Ethereum, like they had legitimacy, right? They were there for the trust of the community. Now, they went totally rogue or they went crazy. The community could just fork and go somewhere else, right? But there was a sense that they were your representative and, you know, you didn't, like, look at every pull request that Linus was uh, opining on, but you trusted him, you know, because of the legitimacy pulled over time to be like, okay, I'm going to trust him to make decisions and this is going to be the official kernel for. And I think in some ways, tokens, you know, do two things. One, they formalize that. They formalize the relationship between, you know, for example, so many people contribute value to Linux, you know, but how many of them actually gotten the same value back? And now we could have a token mechanism which actually orchestrates. And the second point is what you said, which is Sahil. I, I don't want to make this about Twitter. Same is true for Instagram, same is true for TikTok. It's not just for social media. 
think of any marketplace company, right? A lot of marketplaces have on the supply side, you often have these small set of suppliers who basically generate a lot of the transaction volume or generate a lot of the economics, but they often, like, they probably don't have any presence on the cap table, right? Like, you know, any sort of like marketplace ecosystem. Now, you know, Web3 version of that could say, hey, we are going to take over and give them economics where in the marketplace, it's as if, you know, eBay 20 years ago came and said, I'm going to take our top 10 sellers. Uh, they actually tried some version of this, but it's kind of like, I think a symbolic move, but we're going to take our top 10 sellers and make them like some meaningful stockholders in like on the eBay cap table and we're going to give them governance. And by the way, it's going to constantly shift based on their, you know, uh, if they leave eBay, they lose that, right? You know, if they continue, if they stop selling somebody, whatever it is. So, and I think we actually, by the way, we actually just, you know, um, partnering with a company which is doing some version of this. So uh, I think all of this kind of like very interesting. I'll be the first to point out that this is very early. It's a, and this, oh, by the way, I think there was a question I think we we're talking about. Is it like, why am I drawn to Web3? One of these is like, all this stuff is brand new, right? This is a totally unexplored, like, design surface, right? It's like 2005 and people are figuring out what REST APIs are and user-generated content are for the very first time. So uh, we'll figure out a bunch of things. But even DAOs, for example, last year and a half, we learned so much about governance and, you know, we learned tons more about token design. But I think the possibilities are just like, it, it, it blows your mind. So... I know we're running up against the end of time. I have to ask you this um, because I think a lot of our listeners are, you know, builders, um, ambitious people that are trying to go create, you know, these different futures. You're a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, one of the most famous venture funds in the world. If you were to give advice to prospective builders who are looking to raise money for their startups and for their projects, what are the couple of things you would say to somebody? Like, what what stands out to you uh, when you meet a founder um, for the first time? Uh, good question. Um, so it's interesting because uh, you know uh, my you know, my wife is a multi-time founder, and you know I saw her go through the whole like fundraising process. Uh, you know, in Silicon Valley, you know, some good meetings with VCs, lots of bad meetings with VCs, and now it's kind of weird that I'm on the other side. And you know, like people ask me how I spend my day, and most of my day is spent talking to founders, and often. It is for the very first time. I'm meeting them for the very first time, and they're coming in uh, these days over Zoom, and they're telling me about something amazing that they are building and their vision for the future. It's it honestly one of the best jobs on the planet. Uh, okay, so there's, I'm going to give. A, I was thinking about this question because you had asked me about this before. I think there's one bit which are often missed uh, when people VCs give advice, uh, which is my job, right, or any VC's job is to go invest in founders. Like if I spent a year or two years without investing in any company, like Ben and Mark would or should fire me because the job <laughs> is to actually go invest in companies, right? So if you're a good VC, um, you know, you're going into every meeting, you know, hoping like this, you know, is going, this is going to be someone amazing. This person is going to build the next Google or the next Facebook or the next Coinbase or, you know, take your pick. That, you know, because that's the job. Like your job is to hopefully the next person who gets from the Zoom meeting or walks into the door is going to be that founder. So first of all, you know, I, I think, you know, I started my wife, other founders, you know, like I, I feel like they don't understand like you know, the, the, the venture capitalists need you, you know, uh, maybe a lot more than sometimes you need them. Uh, because at the end of the day, you know, we're kind of giving away one of the most commodity of products, which is money. Um, now, like kind of putting that aside, like, I think every, every VC firm, and every individual are very, very different in their own ways. And of course, you can kind of go into like what it means when you are a seed stage company, when it's a very first investment, it's two people in the proverbial garage, and you know they just have an idea, all the way to somebody who's been there for five, six years, and they're raising, I don't know, at several billion dollars because they growth run. But I spend most of my time 
on the earliest of stages, where it's either the very first round of capital or it's close enough to the first round of capital, right? And I think there's a few things I'm looking for. Um, and uh, I, by the way, none of these are original. I've kind of stolen them from a lot of people I've worked with, often AC2C, especially uh, Chris Dixon and Mark himself and Alex Rampal. Uh, the first one is there is a phrase called the idea maze. And I think it comes from either Chris or Balaji, which is has this person spent a bunch of time figuring out you know, going through all the, uh, you know, the various versions uh, before they've kind of settled on this thing, right? Like, for example, you know, uh, you know, I've spent like close to 10 years working in social media companies, right? Like, so I've spent a lot, let's pause it, I've spent a lot of time thinking about social media, right? So if I say, you know, when you mobile a new social media company, you could probably say I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, as opposed to if I suddenly start like a database company, right? I know nothing about databases, like, you know, and unless you could, you know, I could prove to you that I spent a year talking to every single database developer, every single customer, or spend a lot of time with the insight, I don't think I could kind of credibly say I have gone through the idea maze. And I think that is one big difference. And that's probably one of the first things I'm looking for, which is, has this person gone through the idea? By the way, that doesn't mean they need to have worked in that space before. And Web3 is often new. But I'm looking for, you know, have, have has this person somehow explored every version of this idea? Maybe they've spoken to customers. Maybe they built some prototypes. Maybe they spent a lot of time thinking about it. Maybe they've worked there for many years. It could be in one of many kinds of categories. But I think that's step one. Because if you don't have that, right, there's going to be somebody else who's probably gone through the idea maze who's probably going to build a much better version. So I think that's step one. Uh, step two is, uh, I think, you know, uh, I'm going to steal this from Alex Rampel. Uh, you know, he looks for, can this person, you know, um, uh, manifest things? Can they manifest talent? Can they manifest uh, fundraising? Can they manifest sales? Uh, very simply, the best founders, uh, when you meet them, right, they've already put together something. They've already maybe hired one or two people, or they've already built something very quickly, or they already have like a you know a bunch of customers in some hacky prototype somewhere, right? But they only it's they they're very good at just having high output in short periods of time, mm. and it's very you know and often when you see that kind of trajectory, you can sort of plot the dots and be like, okay, this person you know probably has like a good probability of continuing doing that. So um, and I think the other part of it, like so much of startup life is very hard. I think one of the best things about Ben and Mark is they are founders themselves. And they drill into every single person of the firm, which is kind of respect for founders and respect for startup process, because it is very hard. Uh, you know, you should, I highly think people go read Ben's books uh, for that. Um, and so, you know, and what that means is, you know, uh, you know it, are, are, can you actually demonstrate that you're able to actually go sell people on the thing that you're doing? Because it's going to be hard. Right? Um, can you maybe close a hire, close a sale? You know, maybe you raise capital already. Whatever it is, I think so. That manifestation thing, I think, is uh, super key. I think the third part is uh, it's a dual-sided relationship, right? Uh, I invest in a few companies every single year, and uh, let me answer a slightly different question. People ask me what's the difference between being an operator. I hate the word operator and being a VC, right? And the, one of the biggest differences as a VC, at, at least you know, our firm. When we invest in someone, that's a relationship for life. Like 10 years from now, every company I've invested in or 20 years from now will, you know, will be like somebody I work with. Hopefully I'm calling in the middle of the night um, and we'll back them and support them and go to the ends of the earth for them. So that means that you better be very, very careful about, you know, the nation because, you know, you have to, it's going to be a very, very long-term relationship, right? Uh, you know, uh, and uh, when I joined the firm, it was amazing because my very first week, we had this offsite with all the general partners in 16Z. 
and I saw everybody kind of talk about all their companies they've worked with. And and I, it was I mean, so much so much conversation about companies who are like been around for seven, eight years, you know, because the firm is like you know, over ten years old. And I was like, wow, these are like really deep, long relationships, right? So on the other hand, so when I'm talking to a founder, you know, I'm trying to think of like, okay, will I want to work with this person for the next 10, 15 years? Like, will I want this, you know, uh, will I want to, you know, call, uh, talk to this person in the middle of the night, you know, attend their wedding or, you know, whatever it is. Like, yeah, I, I think that's kind of like a interpersonal thing. So I think, in, so on the founder side, I think there's kind of a chemistry aspect to it. There's also an aspect of like, how big can this be? Because, you know, we are in a very much like a power law driven business. So I think one of the things for founders is being able to articulate a vision of, hey, how big can this be? How can this be world-changing? Um, and, and then having all these proof points to go get there. So I'm massively oversimplifying what is a really complex process. I'm still learning, uh, um, but I will say it's probably one of the best jobs in the world. Um, and the reason for that is you just, you know, every single day, some really passionate, smart person comes to you, nice. talks to you about their hopes and dreams, and, you know, and if, you, if you're lucky, you know, you get to work with them, and it's just one of the best feelings ever. You said so many things that resonated with me there. I mean, I, I just, in general, I, I every day um, kind of pinch myself at the novelty of like getting paid to give money to really smart people that are building big, ambitious things. Um, and that's just such a cool thing. Greg and I, you know, constantly text about this, like how neat of a job it is to be able to invest in companies. Um, and so what you said there, I mean, it, it really resonated. I appreciate all of the advice. I know a lot of people um, will find it really valuable as they continue on their builder journey. So I feel like we got through, um, you know, four hours worth of content in uh, in an hour and a bit, because you, you, my friend, talk as fast as anybody. I, you're, you're like a podcast on two and a half x speed we're gonna we're gonna have to uh um you know normally i think people have to put us on one and a half x because greg talks kind of slow i talk like pretty fast and so we're like balancing out but we're gonna have to uh, suggest everybody listens to this on one x speed um you're amazing man that was it was awesome um got through so much in a short period of time and we promise to do an in-person episode in the near future and we will bring you we'll bring you that tequila uh, we'll we'll bring you that tequila. Thank you so much for joining, man. Thanks for taking the time with us. Thank you. I just want to say I'm a big fan, and uh, you know I love what you folks do, and I've loved working together with you on multiple multiple ways. And uh, thank you for having me, and thanks for everything. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you have any questions that you want featured in a future episode, email us at hi at trwih.com. Leave us a review at Apple or Spotify to help us grow the reach of this podcast. Until next time, we will see you soon.